You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It will be a legal test for 16 top universities, including Yale, Columbia, and MIT. They're being sued for allegedly conspiring to manipulate the admission system to limit financial aid for students and tilt the scales to favor children of wealthy donors. Joining me is antitrust law expert Harry First, a professor at NYU Law School. Harry, tell us the history of the antitrust exemption, because this lawsuit depends on that, doesn't it? It depends, first of all, on the antitrust exemption, yes. So um, background is good. You are right. So let's background a little bit. 30 years ago? Holy moly. (laughs) 30 years ago, 1991, the Justice Department sued um, a group of Ivy League schools plus MIT for a practice called overlap. Ivy League it was the Ivy League overlap group, and basically what this was was an agreement among schools that said they admitted students only on the basis of need to do two things. One, the agreement was that they would admit students only on the basis of need, and two. If they had students that overlapped, in other words, admitted the same students, they had a meeting, annual meeting, at which they would discuss these overlapped students and make sure that their offers were close to each other so that the price that the student would would be charged in the end, tuition minus scholarship, would be the same at both schools. So the overlap group met. And this agreement was done for two reasons. One was so that they wouldn't compete by offering merit scholarship, but only compete by offering scholarships to students with need. And two, that they wouldn't then compete for particular students that schools, you know, had mutually accepted, that they wouldn't start a bidding war for those students. Students would get basically the same offers from any school to which they were admitted. So 
the Justice Department filed suit and said that this was per se price fixing, or in the more colorful words that we like to use, a cartel <laughs> that uh, ended up fixing prices of tuition. You know, by by preventing these universities from competing on financial aid offers. Now, financial aid offers are basically discounts off of the sticker price. So, you know, if you compete more on that, of course, that means that your price of uh, your college tuition keeps going down. You get a better deal. And this prevented that competition. One of the problems they had was that Stanford was not in the group. And Stanford was competing for students by giving money, you know, based on merit. There was one example where Princeton started giving $1,000 awards to some of these people who'd been admitted, and the group castigated them for that. In any event, the Justice Department sued these schools, and every school except for MIT settled. So MIT chose to go to trial. Tell us about the trial and MIT's defense. The trial was, in its day, quite a cause celeb, actually, because MIT argued that this is done for social reasons, that, you know, there was only a limited amount of financial aid that the schools had, and they wanted to spread it around as best they could and not start giving it to people who can afford school, you know, who had the money, and, you know, not just give it to a few. So spread it around as much as possible so that classes could be socially diverse and balanced and all of the reasons why we don't want universities just training the children of wealthy people. So that was, in part, their defense. It's a controversial defense in antitrust, social reasons. And there was a big controversy whether this was relevant at the trial. The Justice Department won at trial with an argument that that sort of defense is irrelevant, and the case went up to the Court of Appeals. This was argued on behalf of MIT was argued by Judge Leon Higginbotham, black judge who had just recently resigned from the Court of Appeals. And there was a view at the time that the Republican Justice Department was doing this in part was either racially motivated or racially insensitive, and that this agreement benefited minorities and blacks, and the Justice Department thought that those sorts of benefits were improper. I've never personally been convinced that this was the reason the case was brought, but some people thought that. And Judge Higginbotham argued on behalf of MIT, and the Court of Appeals returned the case to the district court for further proceedings to flesh out this defense that MIT had raised. And then the case settled, and MIT ended up signing the same agreement that the other universities had signed, which allowed them to exchange some information as long as they didn't agree on price, and particularly with you know the amounts of financial aid to particular students. And then the upshot of it was this statute, which is at the center of the litigation now, the Need-Based Education and Antitrust Protection Act, which Congress passed in 1994 in the wake of this litigation. So again, the background is suit is brought. Antitrust liability is certainly possible. There's a question of whether this, you know, the social benefits are benefits that can be considered in an antitrust case. 
case is ultimately not fully resolved. Congress resolves it by passing this exemption to the antitrust laws. So tell us a little about that exemption. And it's supposed to be only temporary, allowing universities to get together and agree on a common methodology, so long as the university is admitted on a needs-blind basis, and a common methodology to give scholarship aid on you know, a needs-blind basis as well. And they could adopt a common methodology for trying to assess you know, how do you figure out whether someone has needs? Not an easy, as anyone who's had to, to fill in those forms knows, not an easy assessment. So Congress at least felt that there was some benefit to having a common metric for this. And the statute specifically says they could do this, they could exchange this information, agree on this common methodology, so long as they didn't agree on a price to a specific student their agreement would be exempt from the antitrust laws because the antitrust laws prohibit agreement, joint action, in restraints of trade. So specifically, the agreement allowed them to agree to award students, I'll read the statute, but to award students financial aid only on the basis of demonstrated financial needs, to use common principles of analysis, and to use a common aid application form, a somewhat narrow exemption. Five former students are bringing this class action. What are their allegations? So the claims are actually quite interesting, I think. So stepping back at this point, there are two hurdles for plaintiffs. One is the exemption itself, of course. You know, whatever these universities have done, do they fall within this statute and within this exemption? The exemption, by the way, expires this year by its terms, but Congress always seems to renew it. So who knows? So the first question is, do they fall within the exemption? so that they have a complete defense to an antitrust suit. And the plaintiffs seem to be arguing, first of all, these universities have broken the very first part of the statute, which says that it applies to institutions of higher education, at which all students admitted are admitted on a need-blind basis. So basically, they say, give us a break. All of these schools consider money when they're making the decision. And they go through this in some detail. And it's not pretty in some ways. I mean, you know, it shows the extent to which the schools actually do seem to consider the means of applicants in deciding who they are going to admit in certain circumstances and do it on a, you know, an institutionalized basis. So the argument would be, well, you don't even qualify for the statute, first of all, because you are not an institution at which all students are admitted on a need-blind basis. You know, people don't get in whether they have money or not. Some people get in because they have money, and you do it consciously. So that would put the school outside of the exemption. And then the second question is going to be, okay, you're outside the exemption, but is it a violation of the antitrust law? Many of the schools being sued offer some of the most generous financial aid to low-income students, and the schools are permitted to collaborate on a common formula for financial aid. So how would the plaintiffs go about proving an antitrust violation? That's going to depend on proving that there was an agreement on price. Now, they're using a common formula, but does that mean they're agreeing on price? Do they deviate from the price? This will be a subject of some questions. And then whether their justifications for what they do are, in the language of antitrust, pro-competitive, designed in the end, schools might argue, this is designed so that we can compete with other schools, you know, in some way or another, and don't exhaust all our money on certain applicants and don't get a diverse class, those sorts of things. So a lot of hurdles yet to go through. 
but a basic story of we purport to be needs line, but we're privilege based. But will it be difficult to prove the schools are not need blind? Well, you might think so, but just from reading through the complaint, you don't seem to have done a great job of concealing it. So the best defendants to sue are those who think they don't have any possible liability. (laughs) So they don't try to conceal things. And there's a lot of quotations in the complaint of things that are on the public record and more to follow, presumably. It's early days, but is this still an uphill battle for the plaintiffs? It's always a fight for plaintiffs. Courts are not hugely embracing of class actions, but price fixing is your clearest antitrust violation. In that sense, they don't have some of the problems that other major antitrust litigation has on the substance of law. But getting there may be a problem, and it will be a battle. They're going up against major, major institutions with heavy financial abilities to fund litigation. And my guess in the end is this is not a trial these universities want to have. They don't want to have their officers on the stand admitting they say that, you know, they want diverse classes and then they go out of their way to admit the children of the privilege. I don't think that they want that. This is a big plot if the plaintiffs can get over certain legal hurdles and particularly the hurdle of the exemption. Harry, will you explain again the two steps of proof? So first they have to show it's need blind and then there's the rest of the statute to see, you know, if they complied with it, uh, you know, which which has other requirements, not just that it's uh, need blind, but all they did was use common principles um, and never agreed on prices. So, um, you know, there may be more that happened than, you know, appears now in public. Um, but that, you know, that that just gets you past the exemption. So the exemption just says you you have a complete defense. If you don't have a complete defense, it doesn't mean that you're liable. The next step is the plaintiffs have to show that they agree to fix prices. Um, and if they don't have explicit proof of, you know, uh, agreement on exact prices, but agreement to use the formula, that's a little more complicated under the law. So it sounds like this is, a for plaintiffs, a massive undertaking that's going to require so much work before they even get to the trial stage, so much discovery. Oh, oh yes. Um, big cases are big efforts. Yes, you're, you're right. Um, it's not, um, now we file our motion to win. No, there, there's going to have to be discovery there. They're suing major universities who, you know, are, you know, they're powerful institutions um, that facing large potential um, liability, uh, you know, who knows how they'll react exactly. So, yeah, it's um, at least on its face, it, it is certainly a big undertaking. Yeah. And I assume that. This type of class action is being funded by the plaintiff's attorneys who expect to pay out at the other end. Yeah, I mean, this is the norm in in plaintiff's class actions. uh, um, The money is not fronted by the client, usually, particularly if it's, you know, on behalf of end-user consumers, which these are. These are the students that they're suing on behalf of. There are a lot of students 
you know, over the years from these colleges. So they're asking for the, you know, um, have this as a class action. Uh, and they're asking for a jury trial. Um, you know, so yes, the cost, the costs of this upfront are borne by the lawyers who are representing uh, the class members. So plaintiff's class action lawyers um, do not undertake these kinds of cases lightly. Um, as I think your, you know, your question implies, you know, they, they're pretty hard headed about the kinds of cases they take and, you know, the view of the possibilities of winning. But they don't always win. Um, but yeah, they don't file for both cases. Does a suit claim that nine of the schools are not actually need blind, but they're all guilty? There are two groups, as I read it. Some they're, they seem to be pretty sure about, and some they're not sure whether they're need blind or not but have been part of the group, so they say they're really part of the conspiracy. Well, first of all, discovery may may surmount this question because presumably they'll find out more about the admission processes at those other schools to see whether they are need blind. But if they're not, the question whether some of the members can use the exemption and some cannot um, is an interesting one. So I don't really have a, a direct answer for that. And Conspiracies, normally every party of the conspiracy is liable for the action of their co-conspirators. But this isn't quite that. The question is, you know, who's entitled to the exemption? So it may be that they won't be able to sue all of these defendants, or maybe there are other reasons why they won't be entitled to the exemption. Does it surprise you that you have these premier institutions, that they don't have Antitrust advisors making sure they don't make missteps? No. Um, That's a hard question for me to answer. I don't really know um, the extent to which these universities with their outside counsel include um, antitrust advice. So I I really can't can't be sure of that. You know, in, in part, a lot of these universities don't quite consider themselves businesses in the way businesses do, so that they might not pay the same attention to antitrust issues that business managers of business firms do, wouldn't surprise me. And um, But other than that, it's just, I'd be speculating. Um, hubris from major institutions should never be surprising, <laughs> so there may be some of that. Thanks, Harry. That's Professor Harry First of NYU Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear an appeal from a football coach who lost his job at a public high school in Washington State after repeatedly praying with his players on the 50-yard line after games. The case gives the court's conservative majority a new chance to bolster individual religious rights and relax the separation of church and state. Joining me is Caroline Mala Corbin, a professor at the University of Miami Law School. So tell us about Coach Joseph Kennedy. So basically what happened was the coach got into the habit of praying out loud immediately after football games in the middle of the field, surrounded by his students and the other team and with the crowd still there. And this public school worried about an establishment clause suit, asked him to stop. And they said, you can pray quietly on the sideline. We can find you a spot. Or if it's really important for you to pray at the 50-yard line, please wait until the field is empty. So they try to accommodate his religious practices. But he insisted on praying publicly in front of everybody. When the school refused, he brought a lawsuit. And some of the students said, some of the players said, they felt pressured to pray even though they didn't want to, and some of them were atheists. Absolutely. There was one student, an atheist student, who had no interest in praying, but he was worried that if he did not, then the coach would punish him by giving him less playing time. So one of the reasons why there are establishment clause protections in places like public school is to prevent exactly that, the government pressuring others to violate their conscience and feeling forced to participate in religious exercises against their will. So tell us what the Ninth Circuit said in turning down his appeal. So he brought both a free speech claim and a free exercise claim. So he argued that being denied the opportunity to pray in front of the students, in front of the crowds, violates both his speech rights and religious rights. And the Ninth Circuit rejected that based on the Establishment Clause. As I said, the Establishment Clause, it's the one that requires some separation between church and state. And one arena where it's still pretty vital is 
in the public schools to make sure that the state, the school, or people who work for the school don't force students into uncomfortable religious exercises. And the school said, if we allowed you to continue, and the court agreed, if we allowed you to continue these prayers, you would be basically violating the Establishment Clause. And so that is a compelling reason for the government to limit your own free exercise. This is the second time he appealed to the Supreme Court. Certainly he's getting another bite at the apple. And the difference now is we have a much more conservative court that seems like they may be more sympathetic to his claims. And so that may be the reason why they granted cert. Last time, Justice Samuel Lito said the Ninth Circuit ruling was, quote, troubling. What was the last case the Supreme Court decided involving public prayer? Do you recall? Well, there is public prayer outside the school context and public prayer inside the school context. And ironically, the last public prayer at schools also involved football games. <laughs> and in that case, there had been a school with a long history of selecting a student to give prayers at school. And when the school district was told that the school sponsoring a student to say prayers violated the establishment clause. They changed their program to allow a student to be elected and to give some kind of benediction. So thought they had sort of dissociated themselves from the prayer. But in the end, all the students chosen would continue to give prayers. And someone said, this is still the school's sponsoring someone, giving Christian prayers in violation of the Establishment Clause. And the Supreme Court agreed. It said the student was still closely associated with the school, such that the prayer could be attributed to the school. And again, school should not be in the business of praying that violates the Establishment Clause, because there is so much coercion on students, right? Not only are students required to be at school or required to go to school events, like football games, if you're a band member or football player. But students are young and impressionable, and they're very susceptible to peer pressure. And all these reasons really create a lot of pressure on students to conform. And with the case of prayer, conform in ways that might violate their own religious beliefs. And so in that last case, the court was very protective of students in school and really insisted that the school cannot sponsor prayers, or school officials should not be giving prayers, that it clearly violated the Establishment Clause. This means that four justices want to hear this case, perhaps more. Mm -hmm. Does it seem like they would be only taking this case in order to reverse the Ninth Circuit? Uh, Unfortunately, I fear that might be the case. This Supreme Court has been steadily eroding, if not eviscerating, Establishment Clause protections. The one area where they still survived was in the school context. And I fear they took this case as a vehicle for eliminating those strong Establishment Clause protections in public schools as well. This case seems rather blatant because of the pressure on the students to pray and because he was making it into an event. 
So if they decide that this was within his rights, what's left? Exactly. And under existing law, this should have been a very easy case, and he should lose, which he did in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And so it is worrisome that the Supreme Court has decided to take this case. Now, this case also involves speech as well as religion. So maybe they're thinking about clarifying the speech issue because he also bought a free speech claim. And his free speech claim is complicated by the fact that the free speech rights of public officials are much more limited when they're on their job. So maybe they want to rule based on free speech rather than free exercise. I don't know. Today, the court did decide not to take a religion case involving who gets to decide who's a minister for tax purposes. Yeah, I think they get a special benefit for ministers, special tax relief for ministers. And of course, the question there is, who counts as a minister? And that actually also involves the Establishment Clause in that the secular court should not be in the business of deciding who's a minister or not. On the one hand, right, if you don't have the court making some determinations about who is or who is not a minister, a church can declare everybody's a minister. On the other hand, if the court does decide, make determinations, they may become entangled in religious theology in a way that's not appropriate. And so there is a real question about how the decision about who's a minister or not gets made. But they they turn that down. But Justice Gorsuch dissented from that. He said that bureaucratic efforts to subject religious beliefs to verification have no place in a free country. It seems that in every case in recent years, this court has been bolstering an individual's religious rights over other rights, for example, gay rights or reproductive rights? The court has been very sympathetic to claims of religious discrimination, and so much so that I really think they're emboldening people to make claims of religious discrimination that would be considered utterly outlandish in earlier times, like the coach's case. He's so clearly a school representative And he was given so many other options in which to honor his own beliefs that his insistence on praying out loud with the students and the other team in front of everybody does seem like he is really asking for a lot and asking perhaps not in vain. Has there been another court that you can recall in our history that was so, let's say, protective of religious rights? I can only speak to modern courts because I think if you go far back enough, I mean, the, it, it hasn't been so long that we've even been applying the religion clauses to the states and really had them active. But certainly, as long as I've been keeping my eye on these things, there has never been a court so willing to privilege religion the religion of some even over others. So it's not just religion over reproductive rights, religion over LGBTQ rights, religion over establishment clause, but the religion of this coach 
over the religion of others. Because again, it's not just the coaches' rights at issue. It's also the students' religious rights at issue because it's a violation of their religious rights to, to be forced to participate. So I think this court is unusually receptive to Christian religious claims of discrimination. And in the case from Maine that's before them, it seems that they're also going toward the use of public dollars for religious schools. Exactly. It used to be the case when you were talking about government funding and religious schools, the question was, would it violate the Establishment Clause? Because historically, the government was was not supposed to directly aid religion. That's part of what the Establishment Clause forbid. But this Supreme Court has so turned the law upside down that they now have held that it violates the Free Exercise Clause if the government doesn't give money to religious schools. And let's be honest, the main beneficiaries will be Christian schools. So I think it's important to note that the religion that benefits is not religion writ large. It's mostly the majority religion in this country, which is Christianity. Really, we should be focusing much more on religious minorities and how the Supreme Court's decisions are affecting them. Because, you know, imagine all the students on the team who are not Christian, not just the atheist student, but the Jewish student or the Buddhist student or other students whose beliefs don't align with the coaches. Imagine how they feel each and every time their coach has a prayer before the game and then has prayers at the game with the whole school district watching. How do they feel? One of the interesting twists in this case is that there is a secular group called the Satanic Temple who don't actually worship Satan. They just feel strongly about secular values. When they heard about the Christian prayers occurring on the field, they made an argument. Well, if you're allowing prayers on the field, we too would like to participate. And we too would like to give prayers on the field. If you're going to have prayers, you should allow prayers from all religions. And part of the school's response to the coaches, if we allow you to have prayers and not allow them because they didn't, it's going to look like the school is endorsing Christianity. And again, that is something the Establishment Clause is supposed to bar. So there really was an actual issue with religious minorities in this case. Thanks, Caroline. That's Caroline Malik Corbin of the University of Miami Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm Judy Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.